Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Previously on Climbing Gold. He like took the poles out of our tent and told us that he would crevasse our gear if he got back to the mountain before we did. Everything we touched seemed to turn to gold. You're looking at the head wall the entire time too, so it's just like this big looming monster. Perfect specimens of like emaciated climbers. I started to realize what it would take and what it means to, to free climb Cerro Torre. All of our heroes have been talking about removing these bolts. I mean, ever since I've heard about Cerro Torre, I've heard about the compressor route. This is part four of The Greatest Lie. A four-part series about one of climbing's greatest controversies. Sometimes, righting a wrong comes at a cost. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitzko Hall. And I'm Lauren Delaney Miller. This is Climbing Gold. Chapter 4. Belief. We were riding a real high after a really awesome season in Patagonia. Jason Cruck and his partner Hayden Kennedy had just returned to their camp in Niponino. They chatted with friends Kate Rutherford and Mikey Schaefer. Mikey snapped a photo of Hayden, basking in the sun, surrounded by the mountains, a sling of 120 of Maestri's pitons draped around his neck. It's an image that always makes me smile. They had just blazed up a fair means ascent at the southeast ridge, and in the process, they'd completed a task that many in the elite world of alpinism saw as necessary, the erasure of Maestri's compressor route. It was just a few weeks into the Austral summer, and the duo had arguably had one of the best seasons of all time in Patagonia. But the high wouldn't last. While the duo had been making history on Saratori, across the valley, on St. Exuberi, their friend, Carlisle Norman, had been hit by rockfall. Word had spread, and there was a mounting rescued effort to reach her before the weather window closed. Carlisle was gravely injured, and her partner had no choice but to leave her there and go down and try to get help. Uh, you know, of course, Jason and Hayden knew nothing about the terrible accident. Not long after getting back to their camp, friends broke the news. The climb didn't matter to them at all. Everybody was devastated. Hayden was just kind of amped up, like, we got to go. We got to get a rescue going. This is the moment he got down after all that they had done on Saratore. But Jason was more pragmatic. Jason kind of recognized their level of fatigue and knowing that there's a lot of strong, better-rested climbers there ready to help. I talked to one person who was among that crew. He said that they were ready to go from minute one. He, he said that they said nothing about their climb to anyone during this time. No one cared, especially them. We had to tell them to get sleep and eat because we might need them later. And so did that accident put the, the climbing that you had just done on Saratori and removing the bolts and all that, you know, put it into perspective a little or, or put it into question? I mean... You're absolutely right. That's all that we were focused on, and it was the big bummer. Um, it made everything else not nearly as fun. Hayden and Jason's world had just been turned upside down, and the community swung into action. There 
reviled Red Bull helicopter um, then proved useful because they're not a rescue helicopter, but they volunteered to shift and try to help out and try to save Carlisle um, by flying over and trying to locate her so that rescuers and four incredibly brave uh, great climbers went up and tried to save her. And uh, yeah, she, she, she didn't survive. Shaken and exhausted, Hayden and Jason started the long march back to El Shalten. When something so, so tragic, just so devastating like this happens, it also brings us perspective. We, we realize that the climb isn't the most important thing right now. Along the way, the exhausted climbers stopped to take a break. They set down their packs and sat down to drink some water. And they could hear some people coming up the trail. It was David Lama and his climbing partner, Peter Ortner. They were back, headed for the southeast face of Saratori. David already knew the bolts were gone, but he was not deterred. The climbers had a pretty awkward and brief hello, and then they kept hiking in opposite directions. So then what happened? I mean, there's this terrible accident. Like, basically, you've had this incredible high, this incredible low. What happens when you finally do hike out of the mountains? We hiked out, and we tried to maintain a low profile. We were in mourning of our friend. Hayden went to order us a pizza and get us a couple beers. And I went to the phone booth to try and contact one of Carlisle's friends. That's where I was confronted by a fairly large group of very angry uh, El Chelten uh, locals. Jason and Hayden, they'd only been down from Saratory for 24 hours, but somehow word had already spread to town about the bull chopping. And people were not happy. I thought, great, <laughs> somebody had the balls to take these balls out, <laughs> finally. This is alpinist Dorte Pietron again. I mean, people have talked about it and now somebody finally did it, but also I knew that <laughs> there would be a big discussion about it. Like, when did you first hear that, that Jason and Hayden had chopped the compressor root? I wasn't in Patagonia that season, but I probably heard about it, like, very soon after it was done. You know, probably the next day or something. Here's Josh Wharton again. And w- what do you think? I was psyched. <laughs> but I was also I was also nervous for Hayden and, and Jason because I just had remembered the experience that Zach and I had had at the time. What did you worry about? I mean, I just worried about how they would be received in town, whatever, like, anger would be sent their way, those sorts of things, you know? Like, I was just, con- I was just concerned for their well-being, essentially, because I knew that a bunch of people would freak out about it. <laughs> What did you think would be the reaction, or, or did you have any guess as to how people would react? We weren't so naive to think that there wouldn't be people that were upset, but we thought that it would blow over relatively quickly. The reaction against Jason and Hayden's chopping of the compressor out was swift and fierce. I'm sure, I'm sure Hayden and Jason got down feeling like kings. They're like, we did this amazing thing, we're the man. And then and then by the time they get back into town and an angry mob forms and they get taken to jail for their own protection for the night, I'm sure by then they were probably a little bit less, uh, you know, proud of, of the whole experience. <laughs> probably a little more, more circumspect. 
like, oh, geez, like, what have we done? They wouldn't allow me to make any calls. And uh, they basically brought me back to the cabin where Hayden and I were staying. And I think they just wanted the bolts back. They were probably trying to run us out of town. I'm not sure. That's when the police showed up and intervened. It's unclear whether the police were arresting Hayden and Jason for stealing bolts from the national park or if they were just trying to protect them from the angry mob. The news of what was transpiring in Patagonia was now spreading like wildfire, propelled by social media. They were in jail, but not necessarily under arrest. Local climbers were trying to get them out. To me, it didn't make any sense. I mean, Jason and Hayden, they were persona non grata in, in El Chaltén. There were these signs everywhere that they shouldn't be there. And the first night, I think people were throwing chairs at them. And I mean, they had to get rescued by the police. And it was really crazy. And I mean, most people that got so aggressive, I mean, they wouldn't even have realized that the balls weren't there anymore because they never touched the face. And so how can it be that important to them? I mean, it's just climbing. (laughs) I mean, climbing to me is very important, but to put it into perspective to other topics in life, to me, it doesn't make sense to wish somebody death for taking out some bolts in a route that most people will never climb or never touch. People were upset for a whole variety of reasons. For certain people, the compressor route was the route that they wanted to try to climb, and then it was suddenly unattainable. Here's alpinist Colin Haley. The compressor route, because it was mostly bolt ladders, was basically doable in any conditions. And because there was very, very little actual mandatory climbing on it, and the mandatory climbing was quite easy. And so for the decades that it was the normal way, yeah, it was a pretty reliable way up the mountain. And when it was gone, yeah, the Ranyi is harder to get to and under normal conditions is definitely serious, uh, more serious, more difficult climbing. It was one thing for climbers in El Chaltan to be upset. Hayden and Jason, had kind of expected that, and Josh Wharton had gotten a taste of it years prior. But the chopping exploded online. People all over the world were chiming in with their opinions, and it got heated fast. This is alpinist Kate Rutherford. The black and white nature of that conflict is kind of uncommon, and you had to pick a side, and that, I think that surprised everybody. You know, I can understand why some climbers would be upset if they had climbed Saratoria and basically, you know, something that they had worked hard on had been erased. But why do you think the sort of some armchair climbers were so upset about removing the bolts on Saratoria? Mm, I think a piece of it was this ideal of elitism. There was lots of arguments at the time made that, you know, it was like historical and it was removing something, you know, a piece of history as if you could erase history, you know, as if no one would remember it entirely. I mean, it just sparked this global controversy. People who could not for the life of them point out even the side of the mountain where the compressor out is, were just enraged. People were just fucking pissed. But there was also something else going on. It's also worth acknowledging. People, not just climbers, in El Chalten, they weren't just upset that the bolts were taken out. They were upset that they were taken out without the input or permission of the community. Remember, 
There had been a vote back in 2006 when Josh and Zach had floated the idea. And some people felt like the will of the community had been deliberately ignored. I think what happens is that people in town, many people in the community was angry about how they do it. They do it without asking permission. Here's Argentine climber Horacio Gratón again. Like, they say, what if I go to whatever Yosemite and, and decide this ball ladder is not good and I can do it by other means and chop it? What What is going to happen to me? Here's Colin again. I mean, for all sorts of legitimate reasons, I think all over Latin America, there is a historical sense of the U.S. interfering in politics and government and wars and upholding dictators in Chile and things like that. So I think all throughout Latin America there is a understandable kind of resentment towards American interference. And when Hayden and Jason took the bolts out, I'm sure that that was like the last thing on their minds that they were trying to impose like an American way of doing things on Argentine climbers or something like that. But I do think there was a feeling of like, what are these foreigners doing taking out bolts here in my country? Even though Jason is actually Canadian, the message became clear. Hayden and Jason, they weren't welcome in El Shalten anymore. They were persona non grata to people that they'd considered friends just days earlier. It changed them. I think this was like the first time they'd seen like really negative reactions to something that they chose to do. And, you know, I think they grew up a lot in this process, for better or worse. Uh, Jason, obviously there is a ton happening in this little tiny town, but simultaneously... Uh, the story was was blowing up online, and the the global climbing community is weighing in. Were you guys feeling that at all? It wasn't easy to compartmentalize that at all. In fact, it took a lot of soul searching, and it was really tough. And I potentially could have gone to a much bitter place, but instead, I think that it gave me more empathy for humanity and. I had Hayden to commiserate with, and he was just such a wise person. We eventually just tried to make it into as positive a thing as I could. But for Hayden, losing the trust of some of the climbing community was a huge loss. When Hayden was coming back to the States, you know, we knew that he had had it pretty rough down there. You know, he had told me that, you know, he's like walking through town and like people who were like, he had thought were his friends and who he had gone bouldering with and cragging with were just coming up and were like, fuck you, you know? And then he settled into his regular life. But I mean, you're, you're dealing with a lot of people saying some pretty shitty things about you. And uh, I, I think it affected Hayden quite a bit. It kind of shattered some of his innocence and some of his idealism, I think. Him losing the love of the Shelton climbing community was like this really big blow to his foundational understanding of the world. You know, there was always this like hopeful quality that they were going to have this really positive impact and that this was like the thing that we should do for the world. And it was like pure excitement and 
youthful enthusiasm, you know, and I don't think it would have worked any other way. You know, I think if they had understood the complexities of what they were doing and the impact it would have, I'm sure they would have, I don't know, I, maybe, maybe they would have done the same thing, but. As I grow older and I have more experience in life and in communities uh, and have done even more traveling around the world, I realized that sometimes it's not about the thing. It's a bigger problem or a bunch of problems. So yeah, in, in hindsight, it seems incredibly dumb and, uh, you know, just, just so naive. It's, it's funny you say that um, in hindsight it seems incredibly dumb, but I mean, do you regret chopping the bolts? No, I don't regret it. Um, would I do it today as a 35-year-old? Maybe not. Um, would I do it again as a 25-year-old? Probably. While Hayden and Jason are back in El Shalten, dealing with the backlash from the chopping and the grief of losing their friend Carlisle, David Lama is back up on Cerro Torre. But this time, the bolts are gone. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the Pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete tested and expedition proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Chorus when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger, because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. We did the route before David Lama did, and in my mind, I had this weird mental block that it wasn't free climbable up there. Here's Hayden. Our route on Saratory was uh, we graded 11 plus A2, and we were going, I was trying to free climb as much as I could, but it was kind of interesting in my mind. I didn't really thought, I didn't think that the headwall would go free. Hayden and Jason had done a lot of free climbing on the headwall during their fair means ascent, but that hadn't been their primary goal. So when it made sense to pull on gear or aid tricky sections just to keep it moving, they did. David's original goal, on the other hand, was to climb free. He'd use my A3's bolts for protection when it made sense. His route veered off the compressor route in many places. Even with them, it had the potential to be a run-out and dangerous undertaking. Now the ante had risen. He wouldn't have Maestri's bolts to escape onto. You would naturally think like, oh man, he's kind of hosed now. But David had a very deep, deep belief in himself. 
In the early morning of January 20th, David and his partner Peter Ortner left Nipponino, and by late morning, they were at the 90-meter ball traverse. David stared up at a seam, one that Jason and Hayden had climbed just days prior, but the seam looked way too thin for free climbing. Instead, David stepped around the corner onto terrain Josh Wharton and Zach Smith had climbed in 2007. Where Josh had left the piton to pedulum off of, David placed a few small pieces of protection, grabbed tiny edges, and climbed up. But the pitch was hard. He fell, again and again and again. The Red Bull helicopter buzzed above, and David started to doubt if it was possible. He kept working on it, and soon he had unlocked the pitch, a stout 513B with huge runouts. The first problem had been solved, but the headwall loomed above. I remember he told me um, somehow I just knew I could protect up on the headwall because I'd been there the year before and I knew there were flakes and features. It would work. It would have to work. And he was undeterred. The bolts might have been gone, but the compressor remained in place. Just below it, David went right where Jason and Hayden had gone left. The headwall was challenging, 512 climbing with questionable gear. But 24 hours after leaving the coal, David and Peter stood on the summit successful. Here's David talking with our producer, Evan Phillips, in 2018. What was the most memorable moment or memorable pitch of that climb? I remember maybe two pitches in particular, one being the crux pitch, which actually felt pretty hard when I did it. I mean, I, I took a, a nice whipper on that. And it was definitely nice climbing that pitch because I nobody knew if that variation would go free and there's almost no holds. It's like this blank red. The nice thing is it's just a little bit angled, so it's not that steep and you can sort of crimp onto some small, like really tiny flakes and um, hold onto some slopers. And I remember that pitch pretty well. And then I remember also one of the last pitches maybe it was even the last pitch, where I kind of found myself, you know, hanging on the headwall of Serratora and climbing the features that I've seen like four years before. So it was really like in my head, like really had this this picture in mind of the photo I saw in in that climbing magazine in, in the Cochamo Valley. And then like finally was was climbing up there and sort of realizing the dream. David had done the unthinkable and, in the process, validated Jason and Hayden's claim that maybe the bolts really didn't need to be there after all. To be honest, Hayden and I were deeply impressed and quite proud of David for pulling it off. Like, he did it in quite good style in the end and almost against all odds, which really proved what a talent he was. What do you mean by all that? Like, unpack that. Well, he was uh, not the experienced alpinist at that time like he was really just cutting his teeth so to see him actually pull it off and do what he wanted to do it's quite a bold claim if you really know what he was attempting at the time it was quite an out there goal so the fact that he achieved it like i actually placed bets that he wouldn't do it at the time and you know i was quite impressed when he did, and it was hard not to be a big fan of him for pulling it off. How do you think that the David Lama's free ascent of Saratori 
change the conversation around the removal of the bolts? Or do you think it affected the conversation around the bolts? Idealistically, I think it validated what we did because he threw down and free climbed it without the bolts, further showing that uh, maybe it's not so bad. I think it's awesome. And I think that hopefully, you know, now that the bolts are gone, you know, people will go up there and they'll get stoked and go climbing on the Torre like more. You know, they'll be more inspired and go up there and, you know, try to train harder, be better, rise to the occasion and have a, you know, a really, really amazing success or, you know, at that same point, I think that Alpine Climb is also about having the magnificent failure and learning about learning from yourself, learning from the mountains and then coming back. So I think it's kind of wild that the Fairmeans ascent happens. And then just a few days later, there's this another giant leap forward, right? When it goes free. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I, I think that's the, the natural progression of climbing is when Hayden's up on the head wall of Saratore, he's climbing it mostly free, but not entirely free because that just seems like too big a step. It's too daunting. And so, I mean, I think for Hayden, he was already taking on a big enough psychological challenge just to go up there and try to do it by fair means. And then the next party, say David Lama, can take on an even bigger challenge by doing it in better style. I mean, but this is this is exactly how climbing progresses. Is each party does something a little bit better. Something, you know, they take a little step further. And to be honest, like Lama owed uh, Hayden and Jason a huge thank you at the time because it made his ascent so much prouder mm-hmm. and and way radder in so many ways, and kind of reinforced the idea that the bolts didn't need to be there. I also always wondered if. Uh, David Lama's ascent also blunted some of the criticism of Hayden and Jason because everyone's like, oh, you know, he chopped the bolts. Now nobody can climb it. And then David Lama free climbs it. And you're kind of like, well, maybe standards have just changed. You know, like maybe yes. the mountain is, is steadily changing. It's yeah, like, for it's, sure. It's, it's hard to advocate for a bolt ladder when someone free climbs the same route without the bolts at all. And you're kind of like, well, right. maybe, maybe you don't need the bolt ladder. <laughs> a, f- a few of the people that we've talked to said that they thought that the compressor route stifled innovation in a way on on Saratori, that climbers were just taking the easiest way and that happened to be the bolt ladder but that once the bolts were removed then climbers sort of rose to the occasion rose to the challenge of the mountain do, do you have do you have any thoughts on that climbers didn't want to play the game of avoiding the bolts it's just not that fun but as soon as the bolts were gone look what happened on the mountain it was pretty trendy to climb on Cerro Torre again, and it attracted talent from all over the world. And uh, a lot of amazing climbing has been done on the mountain that I'm not not sure would have happened if people were still climbing the compressor route. Gracia, what impact did the bolt chopping have on the way that people climbed Cerro Torre? That's a funny thing, that people realized that Ragnar route wasn't so bad after all. Horatio Graton again. He's talking about the West Face route put up by the Ragni de Leco, the first true ascent of the mountain. So now I can say this, um, the normal route of serotonin will be the West Face, the Ragni route, which is always tricky, of course, and can be really hard because of conditions. But without having the balls, people start looking at there, and some people did it, and some people say it wasn't that bad. So, you know, we all try and, and we did it and we say, yeah, it wasn't that bad. So chopping the bolts, it's supposed to, you know, close the door of Cerro for many people. And actually it opens to many more. I mean, there's like irony in 
law of unintended consequences and so forth. So the Ragni route has gone from like when Colin and I did our climb, I, I think there was like a few, I think it had seen like eight ascents or something at the time. Now the Ragni route has seen hundreds. Yeah, it's interesting. And do you think that the the presence of, of the bolts had been holding climbers back? For sure. I think everybody had seen it as this, this, you know, really, really difficult thing and had been sort of resorting to the bolts all the time as just what's the easiest way to the top. I mean, you know, as soon as the bolts disappeared, all of a sudden the West face got climbed a lot and gets climbed almost every season now. You know, you could argue that that's just because there's more people there, but I think it's largely just because it is now the easiest way to the top technically and probably doable in the most weather conditions. So all of a sudden it just got climbed way more um, and had way more attention. So, so when you heard that it was chopped, did that make you more inspired to go back or less inspired? You know, how, how did that change your opinions of Saratoria once you heard that the bolts were removed? It made me more inspired to go back. Josh Warden, who had attempted a fair means ascent years earlier, felt reinvigorated by the effort these guys were putting into the Southeast Ridge. Ten years later, he went back. So 2016, I went down there with uh, Mikey Schaefer and a friend of mine named Andrew Rothner that I was climbing with. He was a younger guy from outside Los Angeles that I had met because he was living in Estes Park, bouldering in the park. And we started climbing together and I just recognized that he was tough right off the bat. Like the first day we went climbing was a winter day in the Flatirons and it was 30 degrees and snowing. And he didn't complain and enjoyed himself. <laughs> I thought, oh, this guy will be good for Alpine partner. <laughs> so we did a trip to Mount Hooker, which was like his first time multi-pitch climbing. And then that winter we said, I said, oh, you want to go to Saratore to try to free climb? And that was his first Alpine trip Dude. ever. <laughs> he born so crampons crazy. one day before we arrived at the base of Saratore. <laughs> that is crazy. And so how was it climbing the Southeast Ridge without bolts? Felt really validating at the time. You know, there were four other parties up there trying it. And one of the teams that was up there was an Argentine team. And lots of Argentines had been against chopping territory. But this Argentine team, like, successfully climbed the Southeast Ridge without using, you know, without the bolts. And that was just super validating to be on the mountains, like see a bunch of teams enjoying this route, which was a super classic um, and ultimately not that crazy hard getting up it and be like, oh yeah, this was a great route. It didn't need a line of bolts going up it. You know, it is possible. It is doable. And the mountain just felt like, yeah, it had some new life in it. Josh, Mikey, and Andrew managed the second free ascent to the Southeast Ridge, concluding a years-long dream for Josh. Matteo Della Bordella, who we heard from in episode one, felt the same pull. Matteo, how did that change your interest in climbing on the Southeast Ridge? Or did it influence your desire to climb on the Southeast Ridge? Yeah, it totally changed for me. I mean, the reason why I congratulated with Aiden and Jason was because uh, I think before with the balls, the Southeast Ridge was the last uh, route in Patagonia I wanted to climb. Because uh, just the idea of climbing Cerro Torre, pulling on balls, was uh, totally outside my way of thinking and climbing. And then when I knew the balls were chopped, I say from myself, thank you. Uh, what they did was for me a gift. 
they gave me a, an unforgettable experience when, when climbing this line. While Matteo and his partner Sylvan Schupach didn't manage an entirely free ascent, his time on the southeast ridge illuminated for him the importance of Cerro Torre in Italian climbing culture. For Italy, for sure, it's an important mountain. I mean, even if uh, in Italy people uh, uh, are not all uh, keen uh, on mountaineering, it's only a small percentage. But if you name Cerro Torre, I guess uh, many people know it, even if there are people that don't go in the mountain. And I think it's because uh, it's also part of the culture, of the history, no? And so I think all this gives uh, some more value for us, uh, for the mountain, because uh, it's unique. There is no other Cerro Torre. It's the only one on the face of the art. For Matteo and many Italian climbers, the importance of Serratori is also inextricably linked to Italy's history and to the legacy of climbers like Cesare Maestri, Carlo Mauri, Walter Bonatti, Ermano Salvaterra, Alessandro Beltrami, and Rolando Garabati. There is a matter of pride in climbing these mountains. It's hard to imagine myself in those times because uh, they were different times, no? Climbing a mountain was not only climbing for yourself, but probably it had uh, deeper reason, deeper meanings. Uh, it was a way also to, to give more pride, uh, prestige uh, to, to a country. And for Kelly, this history is still teaching us things today. So I think a lot of the anger kind of comes from an, almost like an idea of who owns a mountain and who has the right to do whatever they want to the mountains. And they're like, well, they, they should have got permission. Whose permission? Serratore's history was completely laid down by climbers from other countries who came in and did exactly what they wanted to, starting with Cesare Maestri. Throughout the reporting of the story, a shadow hung over many of these conversations. Hayden Kennedy continued to be a shining light in American climbing and one of the best all-arounders in the sport. He had incredible success in the Karakoram, climbing both K7 and the Ogre, which earned him a PLA d'Or, alpinism's highest prize. Hayden ultimately stepped away from the big mountains, a move that seemed wrapped up in his experience post Cerro Torre. He settled in Bozeman, Montana, where he met the love of his life, Inga Perkins. And he was, by every regard, a climber's climber. But most importantly, he was a great person who touched the lives of a lot of people. I mean, I remember having a bunch of conversations with Hayden actually about the fact that he could have been a professional climber if he wanted to be, but he sort of always chose to work random jobs, doing Christmas lights or doing construction or whatever else. But he was way more talented than, than really any of the rest of us. He had empathy for everybody, and uh, that went a long way with how he was able to interact globally and present himself globally and um, it also meant that when I was his partner a lot of that rubbed off on me. You know when I think of Hayden I actually think of all of our conversations about things other than climbing because he was a really passionate kayaker and a great guitarist and he had all these other interests and hobbies. On October 7th 2017 Hayden and Inga headed out into the Montana backcountry skiing after an early season storm. They were caught in an avalanche on the flanks of Imp Peak. Buried to his waist, Hayden extracted himself, but after hours of searching and digging, was unable to 
to find the love of his life. He returned to town, had detailed directions to the accident site, and then brokenhearted, took his own life. David Lama would use his success on Saratore to spring in a new chapter in his climbing. The sport climbing prodigy quietly became one of the leading alpinists on the planet. In 2018, he made the first descent solo of Lunagri after four attempts, during one of which he helped to get his partner Conrad Inker to safety after Conrad suffered a heart attack at 6,000 meters. And on April 16, 2019, David died along with his partners Jess Ross Kelly and Hans Jagauer in the Canadian Rockies while descending House Peak after they established a new route. And afterwards, he was posthumously awarded the Piole d'Or for his solo of Lunagri. Maestri's compressor still remains on the side of Saratori, a lasting reminder of the mountain's wild history. We'll be back with more after the break. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. There's a photo in Maestri's book of Tony Egger. It, it looks like Tony Egger, same clothing that Egger was known to wear. And it was in the Chalten Massif, it certainly appears to be, and nobody could ever place it. Despite his insistence that their camera was lost with Tony Egger, Maestri's 1961 book includes a photo from that 1959 climb, with a caption identifying it as Tony Egger on the, quote, lower slabs of Cerro Torres' wall. And I remember bugging Rolo about it, because Rolo Garibaldi knows everything about Cerro Torre and the Chalten Massif. His knowledge is unparalleled. Kelly brought the photo to Rolo and asked him if he could recognize the spot. If they could figure out where the photo was taken from, it could be a huge clue as to what actually had happened on that ill-fated trip. To most people, the location in the photo would be totally unidentifiable. It shows this, like, quagmire of granite with very few unique features. It feels like it could be anywhere. Like, it could even be the Alps. It's just a mass of granite. But everybody knew that that picture wasn't from Cerro Torre. That there's, there's nothing on Cerro Torre that matches that terrain. But Kelly wouldn't stop bugging Rolo about it. 
you know, like a little kid, like poking somebody like, Hey, Hey, where's that photo, man? Where's that photo? Ah, it's nowhere. Oh, where's that photo? Where's that photo? So finally, I think it got to bugging Rolo also. And he and Dorte got pouring over photos and figured it out. I mean, the photo was there all the time. Kelly pointed it out and then we finally realized where it was taken, which was on the west side of Paul standards. And after hours studying the photo, Rolo had a light bulb moment. He was certain he knew where it was taken. He packed a bag and hiked out to the Stanhart Coal, taking a copy of Maestri's photo with him. From the coal, Rolo snapped his own photo, a perfect match. You know, putting things together as well as you can know anything, it, it provides a, a pretty likely explanation of where they actually were for those six, six and a half days that they claimed to be, they being Maestri and backed by Fava, claimed to be climbing Cerro Torre. I never met Maestri, but I met many people who know him. And uh, he was not for sure the person, uh, according to everyone, which was a liar or he was not a bad person. Of course, if you say something that you, you have not done, the logical consequence is that you're a liar, no? So it was more complicated. Maestri deeply believed himself that he made that climb. I, I don't know how to explain, but uh, of course I know Maestri in 1959 never climbed up there. But uh, I, I think it's also wrong to say Maestri was a liar. After his work on the compressor route, Cesare Maestri never visited Patagonia again. The mountain that had brought him so much fame and respect in his home country began to feel like a curse. In 1972, Maestri said something that he repeated 40 years later when the bolts were removed. If I could wave a magic wand, I would erase Cerro Torre from my life. You know, Maestri became a prisoner, a prisoner of his own life. But Maestri wasn't the only victim of his lie. The family of Tony Egger, they had heard all the doubts and evidence, and they wanted to know the truth. I'll argue with anyone who tries to say that, that you don't have a responsibility to be honest about someone's death. I think you inherently do. And I think that's where Maestri failed. I mean, the climbing, sure, but he failed as a human being in lying to, lying to Egger's family for all these years. Egger's sister, Stephanie, held out hope for decades that one day she would know what had really happened to her brother. She always knew that something wasn't right with Maestri's story and that, sure, we know that he died in the mountains. Um, but I think there's a, an understandable human quality to wanting to know what actually happened to your loved one in their last moments. And, and they never got that. I mean, did you think that he would ever admit to, to lying about all this? I mean, because he died several years ago and he went to his grave, uh, you know, claiming that he did climb Serratore twice. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, I guess, uh, what do they say, hope dies last? I, I had held out hope that Maestri would come clean. I sort of thought that for all of Maestri's defiance over the years, you tend to think that there's going to be some sort of reckoning before death. Uh, but we've probably all watched too many movies because that, that didn't happen with Maestri. Cesare Maestri died on January 19, 2021, at the age of 91. The mighty spider of the Dolomites 
he took the truth with him to the grave. I've heard mountains referred to as, as canvases, like places that we can go to express ourselves. I also think that they are mirrors. They reflect us and our beliefs. I've long thought that the way we treat the things that we profess to love is an expression of who we are. We as humans, we, we create meaning for ourselves. And quite often, mostly actually, we create meaning from the meaningless. Um, that's what we do. And that's what we did on Saratory. And I think the, the story, the more I dug into it, it kind of had all of the classic elements of stories throughout time. I mean, you have, you know, truth, lies, belief, adventure, you have tragedy, growth, progress. You kind of have all of the elements that have been with us throughout the course of human humankind, really, all played out on a mountain. Kelly, you've spent a ridiculous, an awesomely ridiculous amount of time diving into this story. You've written this book, and after all you've learned about what happened on Saratori, what do you think this story is really about? I, I think it's about a lot of things, but, but foremost, I think, I think it's about belief. You know, many of us strive admirably to be rational, but I, I'm afraid that quite often with humans, belief comes first. Belief comes first, and then come things like facts, evidence, critical thinking. Uh, I'd love to think that I'm wrong, and I'd really love to think that I myself am somehow exempt from that, but there's not a chance. We're all flawed in that way, and yet there's also incomprehensible beauty in belief. Thank you to everyone for sharing your stories and talking to us about Saratory. We really appreciate it. A big thanks to Kelly Cordes for helping us with The Greatest Lie. We could not have done this without his incredible passion, hard work, and friendship. Kelly's book, The Tower, Chronicle of Climbing and Controversy on Saratory, inspired the series, and it is a great read. Find it wherever you get your books. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written by Lauren Delaney Miller, creative direction and story supervision by me, Fitzka Hall, edited, mixed, and mastered by Evan Phillips, who also created the original score for this series. Additional music by David Swenson, courtesy of Track Club. Our theme music is by Brennan O'Connell. Skylar Perwins is our YouTube and social media editor. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape Then Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>